So we pick it up in chapter 15, verse 1 tonight. So now it's the morning. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. So this group of men, this is the Sanhedrin council. This is the 70 rulers who ruled over Israel with a bit of autonomy under the covering of the Roman government. So Pilate, of course, would be in charge, and his base of power was in Caesarea on the coast. But like the different Roman leaders would do, they would go to Jerusalem during the three feasts to kind of keep order because you get that many of the Jews together who are against Roman rule, and trouble can happen. So Pilate was in Jerusalem at the time, and he's the final authority. But these 70 rulers... They have a lot of power, and they've rejected Jesus. But we do know that Nicodemus was one of these 70, and so was Joseph of Arimathea. So of the 70, we know there's at least two good godly men that believe Jesus was the Christ and were opposed to the events that were going to happen. But it's a large group, and they're powerful. They're religious. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the testimony of John the Baptist. They've rejected the signs and wonders of Jesus. They can't bring a valid accusation against him. We saw last week that no one's testimony against him collaborated because they're all lies. You can't bring anything against light. Darkness cannot come against light. And of course, Jesus was sinless. So the ultimate charge was that he is who he is. I am the Christ. And that's that's what the charge was against him was blasphemy, but he is God. So he's the son of God and he is who he is. So they've done their part. And now the scheme to see him killed and executed is coming to full fruition. So they've bound him and with all that authority, and this is really radical if you think about this, the responsibility of the Jewish people from 2000 BC with Father Abraham to 1500 BC with Moses and the nation coming out of Egypt and receiving the law at Mount Sinai, to the time of Joshua and the judges and the kings. 15 centuries. That's a long time. 15 centuries of all the ethnic people groups on the world, in the world, on the planet at that time, they were the one with the covenant relationship with God. Through Abraham, circumcision being the sign for the descendants of Abraham, which they are. As Jews, the nation with the Ten Commandments and the law that God gave them on Mount Sinai, the three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles, that they would come together for. It was to God who gave, God gave to them his law with the finger of God on the stone tablets. You know, like, he gave it to them. It wasn't the Mayans or the Aztecs or Pueblos or Eskimos or the Nordic tribes of Gaul or whatever. It wasn't them that were entrusted with the word of God and the covenant and the promises. No one else on the planet, no other people group had a covenant with God and a land set aside, set aside by God for them. And these men, including the high priest, Caiaphas, who's supposed to be descendant of the Levites, Aaron, Moses' brother. This is supposed to be the crowning coronation of the king's arrival and the millennial kingdom and all those promises in the Old Testament are in Jesus Although we know God had a bigger plan, like Isaiah 53 would declare, we still have to understand, like, everything they read every day in the Sabbath for 15 centuries pointed to the man standing in front of them, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God. Like, their whole purpose of existence as a nation at this time is all apex on the very moment as they're all looking at the man Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and rejecting him and delivering him to the Romans, to Pilate. It's just an incredible moment. The day itself is the apex of human history, but for the Jewish nation, 
What an incredible moment. One of the Old Testament prophets said this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. It's the day of the Lord in the valley of decision. And wow, this is their legacy. These religious leaders, this is their legacy, a legacy of unbelief, having every reason to believe the scriptures, the signs, the testimonies. Remember, they said to Jesus, you bear testimony of yourself. And he said, if I bear a testimony of myself, it's true. But Moses bears testimony, testimony of me. My father bears testimony of me. The scriptures bear testimony of me. It, it, it was all there in the Gospel of John where he said those things. And it's like, this is it. Unbelief just so blinds people and so hardens their heart. And these religious leaders, they've gone from traveling 60 miles to have a confrontation with Jesus and to critique who is and what he's doing, to binding him, the son of God. It's the blood of God in his veins. It's not like our blood. The blood we have in this room, although there's different types, is common as descendants of Adam. His blood is the blood of God, born of the Virgin Mary. And they've rejected him, they've bound him, and they have sealed the fate for their nation without a doubt in this moment. And Jesus said that when the women would weep for him on this day. He said, don't weep for me. Weep for your children and what's coming upon Jerusalem. Even my son Timothy came home from Italy or Europe yesterday, and he was talking about being in Rome and seeing the archaeological stuff from Titus and his uh, bragging of his conquest, which includes the conquest of Jerusalem. It's there that you can see in Italy. Isn't that crazy? This is, these are the people, and this is the day they sealed that. They're the religious leaders, and they've rejected Christ on as the leaders of the nation and religious leaders, not just political, religious, with the scriptures. Jesus said, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have life, but they are that which declare me. And they rejected that. Now, the next verse, it says, then. Then, verse two, Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. So the scene is set for us. So this first then now introduces us to this picture of Jesus and Pilate. We get Jesus with different associations of people in this chapter and this is through the holy spirit's account through mark's gospel this is jesus and pilate pilate's question the version with mark is much shorter than john's gospel or the whole discord about truth what is truth and your kingdom and we know there's a lot more to this conversation from the other gospels but in march it's very simple pilate said are you the king of the jews the king of the jews now remember or bear in mind that the king of the jews is also the messiah the promised anointed one of the Old Testament. So again, that king who comes from the line of David, that king who's going to reign and establish the everlasting kingdom promised to David in uh, Samuel, there, Second Samuel, when David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, and the Lord said, I'm going to build you a house, and from your descendants will be an everlasting kingdom. This is the king. So the accusation that, as Pilate understood, is 
He, well, he claims to be king of the Jews because he's the Messiah. Are you the Christ? One and the same. The Christ, the king of the Jews. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And he said to him, it is as you say. We talk about Jesus is who he is. And his first coming is the king of the Jews. And he came on that donkey's colt. He's presented to the nation, the fulfiller of the Old Testament scriptures to the Jewish people. And he is their king. But we know in the book of Revelation, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. In Revelation, when he comes, he's the king of kings. So he comes once as a, the king who's the servant of all, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many in that first coming on the donkey's colt. But in his second coming, he comes to rule and reign and establish the kingdom. So he's not only just king of the Jews, but he's a king of kings. And he, as he had said in the previous chapter, when they said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He said, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power coming with the clouds of heaven. So his kingdom is much more than like a Josiah or Hezekiah kingdom. It's the, you know, we understand it's the, it's the eternal kingdom of God and he's the son of God and it's his kingdom. So it is, as you say, this is what, this is humanity. Again, in Psalm two, where it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? And that passage is actually quoted uh, by Peter, but its fullest affirmation is the end of the age when the nation, when the nations and the planet just fully rejects the witness and the testimony of Jesus Christ through his church. And, of course, that's happening in a lot of places, which has always been like that because this light shines in a dark place, the kingdom of God. And he's the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. Verse 5, it says again, he answered nothing. To me, I've pointed this out in times past. I find it interesting that Jesus just, there was nothing to say. We talked about this with Herod the Tetrarch when we're going through Luke. When Herod the Tetrarch, that same day, Pilate sent him to Herod the Tetrarch, who, of course, had John the Baptist beheaded. And Herod the Tetrarch said, hey, do something special. And Jesus didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. And listen, we know in the Proverbs, and of course, this wouldn't apply to Jesus, but it applies to us. Even a fool's kind of wise when he holds his peace. Sometimes there's nothing to say. There's nothing more to say. Like, there's just, there's just nothing more to say here. He submitted to the Father's will. He said, my, not my will, but thy will be done three times. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He's just at peace with the Father in submission to the Father's will. And there's Pilate with all that Roman power representing world conquest and Roman authority. And we know again from John's gospel that dialogue went a lot deeper. But he answered nothing. And then verse 6, it says, during the feast, this course of the Passover feast, and we connect again that Jesus is the Passover lamb. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then this same night when Jesus had Passover prior to the sun rising with the disciples, he instituted the Lord's Supper with the cup, saying, this is my blood that shed for you and the bread my body given for you. And he took that Old Testament cup, that Old Testament feast from the previous covenants, 1,500 years, and he flipped it and made it the new covenant, the new and everlasting covenant for us. So it is, again, it's not random. It's deliberate. It's absolute that Jesus is going to be crucified during the Passover feast in fulfillment of that feast and he fully replaces it as it says in Hebrews he died once for all we're complete in Jesus there's no more Passover lambs they were all shadowing to him we've been studying this with in Colossians on Saturday night as well it's not Jesus plus the law or Jesus plus circumcision Jesus died once for all and it's complete so this is all part of the father's plan he is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. He answered nothing because there's nothing to say. And sometimes there's just nothing to say. And he is fulfilling the Passover feast 
once for all. And that's all taking place with Jesus in perfect submission to the Father's will on behalf of our, for us, for our sins. Which brings up a good point before we move on. Is our embracing and willingness to submit to the things of the Father's will for our life, the things that are difficult. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all of them. And this just reminds us that sometimes God's will is, is not, it's, well, generally it's not the easy way, but it's always the right way. But Jesus said, my burden's light, my yoke is not heavy. But we fight battles, spiritual battles. And it's the reality of living for the Lord. There's spiritual conflicts. Everyone gets conflict. Ours are good conflicts because ours is for the kingdom of God and for righteousness, hopefully, the afflictions that we go through. And we're just reminded, like, Jesus is our Savior. And just his presence and how he carried himself in this situation. We talked about this last week when they came for him, how he went toward them. Remember that? Like, they came at him, and he went right toward it. He went right toward, arise, let us go, my betrayer's at hand, and he moved toward it. And just think, we think, what's our worst fear? Because we, we all have fears of things that we would be fearful of, and we talked about this in great detail last week. And it's a testing, it's a trial, it's a tribulation, and some days they're tragedies. And just know we're not exempt from those things, but the Lord is always with us in those things. And that's what we need to understand. We've been praying for... Our, our daughter's good friend who had a lot of complications in childbirth two days ago and Jade and Leah drove up to the hospital in LA last night and it just I get so I can't even describe it when people are when their children at risk like newborns I just it just it brings back all the flood of things that we went through with our own first son and it, it's such a a sense of loss that's indescribable that you don't want anyone to ever experience it. You would just never want anyone to ever experience it. The people that you think you hate or you wish would go away and that Jesus would come back and deal with it, you would never want them to lose a child. I'm just telling you, it's the worst thing imaginable, a newborn. And thinking about taking on the heaviness of that situation in prayer and, you know, Jade's pregnant, right? And my daughter has two young children. My step, my daughter-in-law has a four-month-old in Florida. I just and just reminded. We need to be reminded that whatever the day brings, Jesus Christ is with us in that day, and He's gone before us, and we're never going to face it alone. He's going to always be with us. We're not exempt from tragedy. We're all of a sudden things feel like. They, they, you ever notice in a, in a tragic situation, things kind of go like warpy? It gets kind of eclectic. It almost like it goes black and white, like, a, like when war movies go black and white or something. It's just like, it just gets really hard to explain, and you can't think straight because you go into shock. In fact, in working with the Red Cross in emergency training, they just they made it so clear in all the studies, all the material they were exposed to and seminars I went to, is that when there's a tragic situation happening and unfolding, people just go into shock and they can't think straight. They, they just, they break into stores and they steal TVs instead of grabbing diapers for their kids. They, no one thinks straight. And it's a, it's a human behavior. And all I could think of yesterday was how much shock my, da- my daughter's friends were in yesterday. Because I know what that shock's like 
where all of a sudden you just hit another zone where you're not even, and those of you that have dealt with really serious, heavy things, you understand what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, you're bound to face them at one point or another. We'll know this, Jesus Christ was rejected by this inhentering council, his own. He was bound by them and delivered to Pilate and stood before Pilate as a lamb led to the shears. He opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53 says, and he just submitted to the Father's will and he did it for us. And interestingly enough, we'll get to it next week, he actually was separated from the Father for us so we wouldn't have to be, but we never are. And it's not a matter of whether we feel like the Lord's with us or not in a given situation. He is always with us, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Whatever human experience comes our way, he will see us through to the end. We may never understand the full purposes of those circumstances or the, the effects they had on our character or people we love or whatever, but know this. Everyone on this planet's not going to be on this planet in 100 years, pretty much, except for a very select few babies right now. And we're just sharing it, and we're moving along, and we're going to face the whole human experience. And Jesus, He just stood there, and He stood there for us in perfect submission to the Father for us, and He stands with us in whatever we're going to face. This day was not for Him, this day was for you, and you, and me, and the world outside these doors. This is how great God's love is for us. Now we read on. So the first then was Jesus and Pilate. The next then is Jesus and the multitude. Verse 8. Then the multitude. It's always a multitude, isn't it? Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. That is, they're asking Pilate to do what he's always done for them, to release someone, one of the prisoners, based upon request. Verse 9. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd, so he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who is called king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. You look at verse 13, and they cried out, crucify him. And then they said in verse 14, they cried out all the more, crucify him. And then in verse 15, we read that Pilate had him scourged with the 40 lashes of the cat of nine tails and delivered him to be crucified. When our son Timothy went to Italy at the beginning of this European trip, he's been there for about a month, he sent a picture of the Roman Colosseum, and I just put hashtag legacy. The brutality of humanity is almost incomprehensible, and I say this quite often, not to be negative, because I want to be a positive person. Do not overestimate good in people, and do not underestimate evil in humanity. The track record of the human experience is pretty brutal. I just think Timmy coming back from Europe and talking with Timmy, like, when I, with the 75th anniversary of Normandy just last week, you just think, like, you try and wrap your mind around what really happened on this planet 75 years ago, or even before that, the 10 years leading up, plus World War I. It's almost incomprehensible. My point being is that somebody wants to rule over someone else, and that's the basic issue going back to Cain and Abel and, and the human spirit of 
the human disposition for war and violence and taking. And when you look here at this situation, Pilate knew that the religious leaders were envious of Jesus. They were fearful. We know that. And the fear of man, of course, is a snare. But they were fearful of losing their things. And instead of trusting in God, they just chose to hold on to what they had. But I've said this before when we're going through Luke. It is, there's a line that people cross. We don't ever, ever, ever want to cross this line where we're so filled with malice and wrath and anger that we are in agreement with the taking of life like this. I just, this is innocent life. I mean, it's one thing to be a soldier and you have to take life because that's your vocation and that's what you're called to do to preserve the safety of the others or in a situation of law enforcement as well to protect and to serve, things like that. But just the whole idea of a mob mentality and think of the Roman Colosseum where there's a vicarious enjoyment derived from watching people die and even being killed and executed. Now, crucifixion was designed to terrorize people. The Romans found it to be very effective, and they would just leave them there to die, and it would strike terror in the hearts of people. This is what totalitarian and authoritarian governments do. But when you look at this situation, these are the religious leaders that were in agreement for this. They stirred up this mob to say crucify not just an innocent man, but God himself who made the covenant with them, the God of the burning bush with Moses. Before Abraham I am, is what Jesus said. And when he said that, the people that heard him say it knew that he claimed to be God who spoke from the burning bush to Moses, and they took up stones to stone him. This is just so incredible, this rejection of Christ, their Savior, their King. And it's not just a rejection. They don't just want him expelled or exiled like Napoleon to some island in the Atlantic Ocean. They want him crucified. They want him suffering. They want him hanging from a cross for all the humiliation that it would bring and the suffering. And yet the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And by his stripes, we are healed. It's so nice to know that God's sovereignty rules over the barbaric nature of humanity. He just catches the wise in their own craftiness. And somehow God's sovereignty works with self-determination in, it, in the human experience. And love triumphs over hate. And good triumphs over evil. And light triumphs over darkness. And we know the end of the story. And we say Maranatha. Right? Because that's the way it's going to be. But this day, this is that one day, if they had day planners back then, you would have kept this page from the day planner. Like, this is that day. When I read this story, I just, it's so hard to just, when you really meditate, like Psalm 1 says, when you really meditate upon this text, it's like this, to picture the scene, like we've all seen it, like most of us seen it in movies like The Passion of Christ or The Greatest Story Ever Told and these other movies that maybe you grew up with them if you're a baby boomer, but I just try and really picture it. And in the end, all this injustice is for our salvation. And this is the love that God has because God so loved the world, he gave his son, and that's what he's doing right here. These evil men, they're doing what they're doing, but really it's the father giving the son. And the typology that we see, of course, is that Barabbas is released. So they cry out for a murderer to be released, and they seek capital punishment upon the innocent one in his place, which is exactly what happens for us when we give our life to Christ. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and by his stripes we're healed, right? But God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
So he died for our sins, and then that perfect righteous life is reckoned to our account, like we've really been studying in detail in the book of Colossians on Saturday nights. So they release Barabbas, and there's a Barabbas in us all. That's the real... In this scene of Pilate whipping Jesus 40 times with the cat of nine tails and all that going on, and the people watching, it's like, oh, like drawn to a horror movie or something. It's like a tragedy unfolding, and, it is, and it's, a, the event of the, it's the event of the ages. It defines all time. And the people are just watching this happen. And they're, and they're getting worked up, and they're crucified and crucified. It's just, it's just such a... It just reveals so the depth and depravity of humanity with what's unfolding here. And yet again, but the great sovereign love of God and the, the love of the Son to submit himself to the plan of the Father for our redemption. For the redemption of our souls, as the Bible says, is what? Very costly. And Jesus said if there's any other way, Satan tried to present another way with the temptation in the wilderness. There is, there is no other way. This is the only way. And this was the way of redemption from the dawn of creation. Even because we're told that he's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So this is the plan even before all that we understand and see in our dimension came into pass. It's amazing. It's so amazing and it's so wonderful. It's the defining uh, action of love by which all love is measured in God's universe. And it's so beautiful and so special that in all eternity, God's going to be revealing to us in quantum levels the depth of his love for us from the events of this day. That's what Ephesians tells us. And it's so special that even before this day happened, the angels, which are a numerable multitude, didn't understand what God was doing with the plan of salvation. The fallen angels didn't understand it. And the glorified angels didn't understand it. Both sides of the coin did not understand. If Lucifer had understood it, he would have never put Jesus on the cross because it was his defeat. But we're told in First Peter that this is so glorious, things of salvation, that angels sought to look into and understand, but they were not able to. But now us in the church age, we have the fullness of understanding through the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand the great love of God revealed to us through the cross and the events on this day, this crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Barabbas was released, and it's exactly what happens for us. The just for the unjust. Jesus on the cross, the just for the unjust. Humanity, each of us in this room. And as many as received him, he gave us the right to become the children of God. But we have to make that choice, and we have to receive him, right? I mean, that's the gospel message. We're Barabbas. Barabbas Barabbas in us all. We may not be a murderer, if you will, but we're all criminals before God. We're born with a sinful nature. Our transgressions reveal themselves quickly enough. And man at his best still falls short. And again, I remind you, when my son was at maritime school and he took those tests for like maritime flags and there's 50 flags and you have to be able to communicate without any electronics at sea. And you had to know every flag. And it was so serious that if you missed one, you failed the class and it set you a whole year back in the, the curriculum the way it went. Literally, if you could not identify all 50 flags correctly, perfectly, you did not pass. It wasn't a grading curve. It wasn't a 92 will get you through. So if you got 49 flags right but just missed one or just got one flag right because you didn't even care and got 49 wrong, you both end up in the same place. You fell short. 
you miss the mark of perfection. And that's what God says sin is. It's us missing the mark of perfection that is his standard of his holiness. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But we in Adam are all born in sin and in Adam all die. So we all miss the mark. Some of us, we get a 49. We get 49 of those 50 flags. Some of us, <laughs> we can't get one to save our life. But either way, we're all failing. Because if righteousness came through us being able to identify the 50 flags, if you will, then Christ died in vain, is what Galatians says. But Christ did not die in vain. If righteousness came through the law, that is, we could establish our perfection, then Christ died in vain. But he didn't die in vain, and he died because we couldn't have that perfect standard. And that flag analogy is the best one I've been able to lay hold of in 30 years as a minister. Because when Timmy told me that, I was like, wow. Like, it's not a grading curve or this. It's, or a, it's just either perfection or failure. And that's the human experience before the throne of God. So those are Barabbas and Saul. <laughs> Jesus came. He got all the flags. And, and we, we come under Jesus. Oh, he's a... You know, we're under his grade, and we get his perfection, and we pass. We all miss the mark, but his perfection and his death on the cross is our passing grade. It's a pass-fail. Perfection is imputed to us or reckoned to us through that faith in Jesus. And this is so important because if you could save yourself, why would God ever put his son through this? But we can't. This is the only way for us to be saved. It's not works plus grace. It's grace. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He did this for us and the Barabbas and us all. He pays the price. We walk. It's incredible. Verse 16. Then the soldiers, here's another then. So we have Pilate and Jesus. We have the multitude in Jesus. And now we have the soldiers in Jesus. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they gathered together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. See, everything's moving toward the crucifixion. But there's just this public beating. There's this public humiliation that he's going through that is all part of the whole process for our redemption and our salvation through faith in him. This scene is a fairly short scene, but he's already been beaten into oblivion. And then now it's a different type of beating. See, there's physical pain, right? We talk about physical pain. If you have a physical infirmity, how much a physical pain can hurt with my back back in April is the most physical pain I've ever had in my life. And that, that hurts. Physical pain hurts a certain way, like it's a screamer. But emotional pain is a different thing, like rejection, when you're rejected by your peer groups, when you're rejected by people you love, or just rejected by society. There's a pain that's a different type of pain. And Jesus is, is bearing both of those right here because he's got the physical pain going in his physical body and the limitations that he accepted coming as the son of man, son of God. And then now it's this public ridicule. Because I've always believed in God, and I don't know if everyone in this room can say that. Many of you can say that. From my, I've always believed in God. I've always believed in God. And I've said this. I used to lay in bed when I was a young kid in elementary years and think about God and how, how it all came to be. But I, I always believe in God. So even when I wouldn't walk with the Lord as a teenager and in my early adult years, 
when people would do things like this, like kind of blasphemous things, I just would be like, oh, that's bad. Don't do that. Like, don't, don't do that. Don't say the Lord's name in vain. Don't, don't do that. And in my mind, even for all the bad things I ever did, I've said this many times, I always knew I'd be held accountable for it. And maybe you felt the same way. Like, I never thought, like, oh, I'm going to get away with this. I always knew I was going to give an account for it, just like I had to give an account to my mom when she'd take the brush to me or, you know, or my dad in his Marine Corps belt. And I, and I say, I never got a whooping I didn't deserve, and I didn't get half the whooping I should have got. So let's make that clear right there, okay? I mean, but in my mind, it's like there, there, there's going to be justice. It was funny because I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and so the TV shows were like Dragnet. Remember Joe Friday and Dragnet? And I could never understand criminal crime shows because I thought everyone got caught for their crimes. And I remember one time as a kid, we were watching, it was like, I'm pretty sure it was Dragnet. And my brother was like, everyone gets caught on Dragnet. In my mind, of course, everyone gets caught, right? Like, in, everyone gets caught. No one gets away with anything. And my brother's like, dude, people... People get away with crimes all the time. I'm like, no, they don't. Because in my mind, with God and his universe, no one gets away with anything. And it does seem like sometimes people get away with stuff, but no one gets away with anything, right? We'll all give an account to the Lord. Our God's a consuming fire. He's a holy fire. And fire does one of two things. It either burns up chaff or, or it strengthens the iron and, and uh, solidifies the element of that which is solid to be. Fires only do one or two things in a person's life. It's going to burn away chaff or, or strengthen you and get the dross out and make you who you're meant to be. No one gets away with anything. Our God's a consuming fire. He'll burn up the chaff. And he'll strengthen us as we let him burn up our chaff. But no one gets away with anything. And when I see a story like this, this record, and these guys mocking Jesus, I just can't even imagine like stepping into eternity. When I see people in our society blaspheming the Lord and coming against uh, his, his universe and his heart, his character, or trying to describe him to be evil like they are, I just think, oh my goodness, like, the day of the Lord is just such a, such a tragic day for him, and what can you do except pray for them? We all probably know at least one person is just raging against the Lord right now, and the answer is to pray for them because they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will, and they're in deception. When Eric and I were talking at prayer before service, we were talking about this, and I don't even watch the news anymore. Literally, I don't watch the news at all. I just figure it's going to go the way it's going to go. I, I've got a life to live, and if the sky's falling, I don't need Chicken Little to tell me. I'll know when I see the king coming or sounding the trumpet. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just, I, I don't watch the news at all. And my life, I think my blood pressure's gone down for sure. It's just, yeah, it's like wife, kids, grandkids, animals, and before that, Jesus, the ministry, vision for reaching people, you know, just, I don't have time for it. Just, there's no time for it. More of God's word. I, and really, I can honestly say what used to be maybe wasted time just reading one news story after another that got me upset and got me, <laughs> it's just like, I just listened to Pastor Chuck teaching 40 years ago from the book of Psalms. I'm like, I feel so much better. I feel so much better. <laughs> an hour of Pastor Chuck versus an hour of the news, Right? Let's see, Pastor Chuck teaching nine psalms or everybody's news and how they want to work you up with it. We live in a blasphemous world. We live in a world that mocks Jesus, that beats Jesus, puts a crown of thorns on his head and brings the beat down on him and our identity with him. And listen, I'd much rather be identified with the one being crucified than the crucifiers. And can I get an amen? Amen.
Think about that one. Wouldn't you, in this story, which group would you, you want to be with Jesus and the bloody, beaten, crucified? Or do you want to be with the crucifiers who are mocking the Lord? I want to be with the, the bloody, beaten Savior, with the crown of thorns. That's who we, when you read this text and you say, where do I fit in this text? We want to be with Jesus. We don't want to be in this multitude. This multitude seems strong and powerful when they're running the Colosseum in Rome, but someday it's just an archaeological site that people go visit and take pictures at. We're the church and we're the kingdom. And the blood of the martyrs is transferred to us to be the church who we are, victorious and triumphant in Jesus Christ to this day. We're with the crucified Savior. And we know plenty of people who beat him, mock him, spit on him, because they do it to us in different ways, in different manners. And it might even increase in our timeline. But you wake up on any day and you have to choose part of the the soldiers beat down or the Savior beaten down. You can never go wrong because the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain teaches clearly to love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use us. And what I'm finding for myself personally this year is I'm finding the ability to, for, to not even take it personal when people are against me or against Jesus or his word or the church or things that are righteous. Just not even take it personal. They're just deceived. And we just need to pray for them. And that's what I need to do. And that's what we need to do. Because you can get so worked up like it's us against somebody out there that's powerful. No, it's not. Jesus is the king. And he's triumphed. And he's coming in glory. And ours is the kingdom. Whatever's coming through his filter into our life is allowed by the king for our lives personally and for our timeline collectively with 8 billion people on this planet. And we can trust the Lord who went through all this for us that he's got this. And if we can just get from here to eternity loving, forgiving, and being gracious, we will do just fine to reign for all eternity. But verse 21 closes out our text tonight. There's one more then. This then is here. Verse 21. Then they, the soldiers, compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. To the place of the skull. So the beat down for Jesus, the mocking, the physical pain, the social rejection, all this stuff, just submitted to the Father and trusting in the Father, that mystery of the triune nature of God happening. And then here's Simon. It's been stated and pointed out that because he's identified with Alexander and Rufus, there's reason to believe these two people were known in the church by those who had received the original uh, manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, and that their dad carried Jesus' cross, and that they probably became believers and were part of the church. Of all the people that ever lived in human history, think about this one. Of all the people that have ever lived in human history, Simon the Cyrenian is in the Bible for carrying Jesus' cross. You think, what was his life like before this day? Like, who was Simon the Cyrenian? You know, that's North Africa. He's North Africa, and he went to Jerusalem for the feast. He's there with a million other people. It's the feast day. What's going on? There's an uproar in the city. He's got kids, right? <laughs> At least two boys. He's just, it's just a religious holiday or something. He's there. And, and all of a sudden, like, the Romans like, hey, you, you, me? Like, me? Yeah, you. 
and he's carrying Jesus' cross. He's carrying Jesus' cross. And I, I wonder, like, when he carried the cross, did he understand the magnitude of the moment and his role in this scene and this story as it's unfolding? Who can know? I mean, hopefully he's in heaven. And I find it hard to believe the person who carried the cross wouldn't be. And because his kids walk with the Lord, it would seem implied. But, like, he carried Jesus' cross. And you think, well, what? It's so incredible. Like, when his mom raised him, she you know, like, you're going to carry the cross of God. You're going to carry the Son of God's cross. Like when he went to a synagogue and they're, and they're reading things and they're reading like, oh, you of Bethlehem, little, you know, and all those things. Would he ever know that he'd be the guy that carries the cross of the Messiah? He was that guy. And I would just close with this thought of application. Don't ever underestimate the magnitude of the moment of a day that God has for you according to his plans and his will. Because things happen that we think are random, but they're not. And God has a plan. He has a plan where he's the guy that's there. And he was born for this very moment. And he's the guy that's there. And the Roman soldier says, hey, you, you carry this cross. Like, God is in the details. Pastor Chuck, listened to a study recently, he said that if we can trust God with the macro, we can certainly trust him with the micro. And he's in the details. If he knows the hairs on our head, then he knows the details. And I just encourage us to be open to those Simon of Cyrene moments where something's going on and you're the one. You're the one. You're the Lord's person for that moment to pick up the cross and carry it for Jesus and see what he's going to do in that situation. And I don't want to miss that in my life and I don't think you want to miss it in yours. In other words, we live our lives, we seek the Lord, give us this day our daily bread, we go about what the Lord has, but we're sensitive to the moments of the day. And, and I've mentioned this year, one of my five main goals is to be alert in the moment, to be in the moment, and to be a servant in that moment. And I'm finding as I'm asking God to help me, I'm finding I am more alert. I am recognizing more ministry opportunities. I am more aware of things. I am realizing more when I've missed an opportunity. And I'm more aware when the opportunities are there. And I would just... This Simon of Cyrene is just a fascinating person that he's the guy of all the humans that ever lived. He's the guy that carried Jesus' cross. But it wasn't random. He was born and made for that day. And you and I have been born, and through faith in Jesus Christ, born again and made for the days that God has for us, for those particular unique things that are just our ministries. And we want to be sensitive to recognize them and fulfill them. Pick up the cross of Jesus in that moment and just do as best you can to be who you're meant to be on behalf of the Lord in those what seem to be random moments. But there's no randomness in your life. There's no randomness in your life, in my life, our lives. It's very deliberate, and he cares. If he knows when the sparrow falls to the ground and he colors, colors the lilies of the field, he knows exactly every detail of what's happening Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and let him direct our paths. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto us. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient are these things for today. Amen.